0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: Could I spend one year on a fairly humdrum, suburban, flat landscape far from mountains, rivers, and oceans? And could my curiosity and imagination be satisfied on that small area?
2: Welcome to the adventure podcast and this conversation with Alistair Humphreys. Al has appeared on the podcast before as our first ever guest on episode one. He's been known over the years as an adventurer and writer, as well as the originator of the micro-adventures movement. Life has changed a lot for Al and his days of cycling around the world and rowing oceans are, for now, dormant. For personal reasons and environmental reasons, Al has made the decision to pursue journeys a little closer to home and his latest project and the book that accompanies it are the culmination of those lifestyle changes. I love this conversation for so many reasons, but a big part of why is that Al is happy to be challenged, and happy to challenge. I forgot I was recording a podcast, which is always a good sign, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Before you inevitably skip this next part of the intro, I'd like to encourage you to head to Al's website, subscribe to his newsletter, and maybe buy a book or two. There aren't many newsletters I subscribe to, In fact, there are probably six in total, and Al's is one of them. Before we begin, I'd like to talk to you about Sidetrack magazine, our sister publication. Sidetracked is an incredible quarterly journal that celebrates authentic stories of adventure and exploration. You can find out more at sidetracked.com. I'd also like to take a quick moment to push you in the direction of our charitable partner, the Martin Moran Foundation. They're a wonderful organisation working to get young people from disadvantaged backgrounds into the outdoors. You can find information about how you can support them on our Instagram bio at The Adventure Podcast. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, then please do subscribe on iTunes and leave us an honest review. They're a big help, and it really does help us bring the podcast to a wider audience. Okay, over to Alistair Humphreys. Well... I, I strongly suspect that most people listening to this will know who you are and maybe have listened to episode one of the Adventure Podcast. Um, Gosh, what number are you on now? I think this will be like 160, at a guess. Wow, amazing. Well done. Well, thanks, it's been fun. Um, a long old road. <laughs> but I think it would be useful for you to introduce yourself and tell us who you are, what you do.
1: Ooh. Uh, my name is Alistair Humphreys. I am a... Ooh, drumroll. Think, think of a job description of the day. I would like to say, my name's Alice Humphreys and I'm a writer.
2: That's a good... Yeah, I that isn't what I suspected and I'm glad you said <laughs> it.
1: What were you anticipating? Well, I thought you'd go down the adventure route. Well, that's... Gener- so for many years I've said, my name's Alice Humphreys and I'm an adventurer. Um, and then perhaps a writer or a speaker or a filmmaker or a podcaster or a photographer or anything else I've dabbled with little by little. But what I've always wanted to actually do is just to earn a living from writing books. So actually at the start of COVID, I dared myself. I was like, right, if you want to be a writer, then you need to just start actually acting like that. So now, yeah, I'm going to now say it. My name's Alice Tampers and I'm a writer. And does that feel qualified? Does it feel correct? Well, there's a few buts that need to come up. Which is, I'm a writer, but if I was only selling my books, then I'd be quite hungry, and so I have to do some uh, corporate motivational talks here and there, and sell a few T-shirts for lovely old Alpkit here and there as well. Full stop. <laughs> <laughs> but one day, one day, I'm going to be migrate from being a cult classic to a bestseller and uh, make a fortune, and never, and you'll never hear from me ever again because I'll have sold so many books. <laughs> um. Brilliant. Well, I
2: again I think we have spoken a lot in the past and um the previous conversations we've had people can go back and listen to if they've not heard it already to kind of get the background, but I think it would be worth talking a little bit about how you became the writer that you are today, the origins <laughs> of your writing and your travelling, etc.
1: Okay. So it um so I suppose my journey towards being an aspiring writer is that I uh, started my adult life, really wanting to do huge, massive, giant expeditions and adventures. Um, So I cycled around the world. Uh, I spent a few years dreaming of going to the South Pole. Um, I rode across the Atlantic. Um, I played my violin badly through Spain. That was what we talked about in the last podcast, which was uh, probably my last big adventure and probably my favorite adventure. And then I been doing micro adventures over the last 10 years, um, trying to um, encourage people to have short, simple, local adventures under the hashtag of a micro adventure. And uh, yeah, my adventures have gradually got smaller and smaller and smaller to the point where I really cannot with any semblance of self-respect claim to be an adventurer anymore. I climb trees these days and occasionally jump in a river, but that's about it. Well, I think that point, that last sentence or two is something I would really
2: like to challenge over the course of this conversation. Um, okay. I, I won't make my case on my speech now, but yeah, I struggle with that. Um, and I think it's interesting because most people who dream of big adventures generally only end up going on smaller and smaller as they are confronted with the realities of age. That's not the case with you. That seems like a conscious decision. Why have you made that decision?
1: Um Well, a couple of reasons. There's a a pragmatic one of um, family um, limiting time away, I suppose. Um, Also, a thinking of that if you're trying to do bigger and bigger adventures, if you do a big adventure, and that's what you're really after in life, then next time you want to get the same hit and thrill and challenge and reward, you need to do something bigger than you did before. Otherwise, it was a bit easier and therefore a bit pointless. So then you do that, and then next time you have to do something even a bit bigger and a bit crazier. And uh, that is a road towards either disaster um, or certainly not necessarily satisfaction or fulfillment because it's always just one more expedition. <laughs> um, and also, I've started to think that you know for for a large time of my life expeditions and adventures were the most important thing in my life and i wouldn't want to take that away from people for whom that still is the case in their life but in my life that doesn't feel like the most important use of my time on earth anymore so there's been a change in um purpose i suppose over the years as well which is caused by <laughs> Getting old, Matt, I guess Uh, it's caused by, well, I think that, so I I started to really enjoy doing micro adventure stuff because I thought of all the great benefits I'd had from doing adventures myself, uh, which we've all, all know about anyone who's interested in adventures, know why adventures are meaningful to you. Um, and micro adventures was great for starting to broaden that to more people in more places, more of the time and to, um, I started to realize it was really quite rewarding getting emails from people who'd gone and slept on a hill with their kids for the first time. I love that. And that, to me, started to feel more rewarding than me going to cycle somewhere cold and miserable again. Um, So there's that side of things. And then I suppose the other part is starting to think about what matters more to me, what matters a lot to me in life. And increasingly, that's become uh, thoughts about nature and the environment and the future of all those sort of things.
2: Yeah, could you go into that in more detail? I think that's true of a lot of us, but for you, that will mean something that's perhaps different to me.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it would be different to you. So I spent a year now, um, essentially it was almost a dare to myself of can I spend one year exploring the single small ordnance survey map that I live on? So the ordnance survey maps, the usual ones that you use when you go out walking or on geography field trips. They measure about 20 kilometers each way. And Britain's divided into about 400 of them. So anyone in Britain lives on one of these maps. You can go buy it for a few pounds or get it from your library. And I realized that I've spent a lot of time in China, Uzbekistan, Argentina, uh, but didn't really know where I lived very well. And I've spent a lot of my adult life, or so, certainly my early adult life, the reason I wanted to do adventures was because out there, out in the world, was exciting and interesting and fantastic. And here, home was boring. <laughs> and I wanted to go away, like a lot of young people do. Um, and then in um, 2019, actually, I uh, spent a month doing a podcast. It's called Living Adventurously. It's a very good podcast, available now from wherever you get your podcasts. And the premise of this was to spend a whole month cycling around Yorkshire, which is where I grew up, because I'm really proud of being from Yorkshire. I love banging on about Yorkshire, but I realized I really didn't know it very well at all. I Um I'd, And so I spent a whole month cycling only in Yorkshire. And at the start of that, Yorkshire's England's biggest county, but I was worried that a month's quite a long time on a bike in a small area, and i might I might run out of stuff, but I realized by the end of that month that actually I needed two, three, four, five months to cycle around, let alone to interview all the interesting people I was meeting along the way, so that opened my eyes up to the idea of paying more attention to your local area, and this idea then of exploring a single map was a real challenge to myself of could I spend one year on a fairly humdrum? suburban, flat landscape far from mountains, rivers, and oceans? And could my curiosity and imagination be satisfied on that small area? And in doing that, I came to realize that I really started to care about the the land and how it was used and the access we have to the land or the access we don't have to the land. And it started to light quite a few fires in me that I hadn't really had when I was for example, in a rowing boat in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. It's quite a different vibe.
2: Yeah, and I think it's, you know, I'm not asking for your postcode, but I think it's worth pointing out that you don't
1: live on the Isle of Skye. No, and this was a quite an important thing to me. So when I when I started, to, when I was doing the micro-adventures, it always felt useful to me that the micro-adventures that I was making little films about and blogging about were often in fairly humdrum areas. I live just outside London. So quite a lot of them are stuff you can do on a train an hour from London. And that felt really important to say to people, look, even me living somewhere quite boring can find this cool wood and this nice place and do these interesting things. So uh, yeah, where I live is a pretty boring landscape just outside London. And if I did live, say, on the Isle of Skye, my year exploring the map would have been great, but it would have been really different. It would have been a really different experience of mountaineering and seeing uh, stuff, like mountain-type stuff, whereas the experiences I had, because of where I live, were extremely different. And at first, I think I would have been jealous of the option to do it in Sky, but actually, I've come to really love scuzzy landscapes, graffiti, Broken-down warehouses, the uh, saplings growing out of the back of railway yards, uh, broken bottles everywhere, but rewilding taking place in its own—that sort of scuzzy, uh, edgeland stuff—I've come to find absolutely fascinating. So, yeah, this is this is my map. It's the map I happen to live on. It's up to me to make the best of it. And the more I've immersed myself into it, the more I've come to appreciate it. And I know you've been you have been doing the same thing, haven't you, Matt?
2: Well, I was going to say it in passing, but and I was wondering if you remember. But I have copied you. Yeah, of you.
1: course. I yes, have I know. It's
2: great. You. And I decided I counted before this conversation, and I'm at twenty six squares, which is you know, Amazing. it's a start. Um, yeah. But I think, and we'll come on to this in themes. I think, but yours is you know, it's a it's a project. There's a book involved, but I don't have a timeline on mine, which is really nice because mm. sometimes when whether I'm child free or whether I think I'll take the toddler. I just go. That one's got some green on it, or oh, that's interesting. There's the railway crosses that, and I take a camera, and I actually, I, you know, I um, I take a Polaroid in every square. That's my oh nice. Um, that's my rule. But anyway, so that's you know, that's a good idea. Yeah, you've already inspired one person to do it, and I'm sure there'll be many more.
1: Yeah, well, I, mean, I I love the idea of trying to encourage other people to do stuff where they happen to live. So recently I did a actually a major expedition which I'd like to talk about in great length here this a seven summits expedition and uh, like all good expeditions can I t- can I talk about this? Please feel free. that it. right. Yes. Yeah. So there's a a fantastic uh, American chap called Brendan Leonard he, on the internet he's called Semi Rad or as he would say Semi Rad um and he makes little films, little adventure-y stuff. I really like his stuff and he came up with this idea of not doing the seven summits, the highest mountain on each continent, Everest, Kilimanjaro, etc He was going to do the seven summits of his neighborhood, the seven hills slash mountains he could see from where he lives outside his front door in Montana. And as soon as I saw this film, I was so jealous. I was like, dude, that's the sort of idea I should be having. How did I not have that idea? I'm going to steal your idea. So I stole his idea and went to find the seven trig points on my local map. And I set out on a seven summits expedition of my area. And I made a short little film of it, which is completely stealing Brendan's film. But the point at the end of it is, right, now I've stolen Brendan's idea. You go do your thing as well. And little by little, I'm starting to hear of people going to find their own seven local summits. And I think that's just absolutely Fantastic. So, um, yeah, I was delighted that you're doing the single map idea.
2: It's quite an interesting thing with you, though, that I don't know if I've ever asked you is, you know, what comes first, your own desire or your need to inspire and motivate? Because I'm I'm sure you get what I mean, but did you come up with your map idea because you wanted to do it for you or did you think that was something we could all do so you had to show us it was doable?
1: Well, I think I need to go back further to originally wanting to go do a massive adventures, which was very much, I want to do this because I want to go do an adventure. So I think within me is the desire. That's the starting kernel of that. But then from that came, Oh, I've done this big adventure. It'd be quite cool to write about it and to talk about it and encourage other people to do adventures. And that gradually led on to micro adventures, which was very much about go you out there, go do this thing. Don't just read the book and put it down, go do it. And, um, So I wouldn't, I'm not a very nice person. I wouldn't be doing these things purely to help others if I didn't enjoy it themselves. I mean, I'm definitely not a a clap for Al uh, NHS kind of guy. I'm doing these things because I really enjoy them, definitely. But I also really, really enjoy the sharing of stuff. And I really love when other people act on these things as well. Um, So I think it's just a bit of a nice positive feedback loop in those. But very... I. Quite a few, quite a lot of things, probably most things I've done, I would have fizzled out on them if there hadn't been the prospect of telling the world about them in some way at some point. So, yeah, I guess I'm a show off as well. Like, like every single guest you've had on your podcast, otherwise they'd have said no.
2: Well, yeah, that's interesting. Got, well, I'm going to make a brief, <laughs> brief side note here because we're often talking about the um, gender split. And might not surprise you to learn that actually one of the difficulties we have with the podcast trying to get a 50-50 gender split is pretty much constantly the men say yes and often the women say no.
1: Mm, yes. Yeah, I can totally believe that. I completely believe that. I, I was um writing Uh, a book I did last year about Ask an Adventurer, and one of the questions, which was people asking me questions and me riffing on that, and one of the things, the uh, the chapters was about, would it be different for you being a woman as an adventurer? And there's all the sort of issues about being a woman on adventure, but what really struck me was this notion that I had the nerve that i could go off on an adventure and then come home and start writing to companies saying hello you don't know me but i'm amazing you should give me loads of money to come and talk about myself and show you my holiday snaps um and yeah and that's a definitely a man thing very very much isn't it i think so lots
2: of people who've been on this podcast have literally made their entire careers and livings out of doing exactly that yeah me included yeah well me included in lots of ways (laughs) yes Yeah, Interesting. Well, that derailed me, but um, to try and get us back on track a little bit. um, I also think it would be good to talk about the motivation here because, you know, your life is different now. You've got family, you live just outside London, and that's obviously a motivator for you not traveling full-time and living out of a duffel bag or cycling around the world, but there is an environmental consideration. And I assume you're not advocating world travel anymore as a, you know week away
1: well well i mean you could get on your bicycle cycle out your front door and go around the whole world without using an airplane and getting back again that's a pretty low carbon trendy way to go around the world um as I did. (laughs) But then but then after that, I then, um, before I sound like a goody two-shoes, I then spent years loving getting on aeroplanes, flying off to places to get paid loads of money to tell people how amazing I was back in my low-carbon, simple days. So yeah, I spent a lot of time flying off for adventures, flying off for talks. And it got to a point where I just thought, this is just not, for me, for me, for me, for me, not morally acceptable for me anymore. So I've stopped Encouraging uh, uh, adventures that involve you having to fly to go do those sorts of things. So, um, but I'm very much keen on people going to do whatever they want to do in the ways they want to do it. But for me, yeah, I don't fly for adventures or for talks or encourage those sort of seven summits type things anymore. It just, well, yeah, I don't want to. But equally, I think really a really important thing about green adventuring. Is to try is the realization that it took me a while to get there. That it's I don't feel I'm missing out. I don't feel my life is worse or less adventurous or less curious because I'm wandering around some scuzzy old warehouses um, out, outside a city. I've come to find it really interesting and rewarding and fulfilling, and not just a pale imitation of my former glory days. But how would you respond to the? you know and I
2: didn't say this to you at the start but I'm sure it's obvious we can steal Alistair Campbell's thing of disagree agreeably if we do um, there is a, a hypocrisy or a, it's all right for you because you've done it you know I think about that with my kids <laughs> you know it's easy for you to say well I'm not going to do that anymore but you've mm. done a lot of it do you feel guilty for that or
1: hypocritical or not i f- i f- i feel guilty about the flying around the world, and uh, geez, and there's tons of stuff as well, like the buying of ne- unnecessary rubbish, the eating of unsustainable meat. I mean, jeez, you can go on and on about all the bad stuff, uh, but let's just stick to flying as a catch-all here. I feel guilty about the flying I did when I knew it was really bad, but I just thought, oh, I don't really care because it's still cool. And there was definitely a few years of that phase. And then I went on to the next phase of, I'm still going to fly because it's really cool, but I'll offset my flights, and that's a better stage. And then there's then perhaps you can say, I'm going to fly there because it's really cool, I'll offset it, and I will make sure I contribute more good than the harm I am doing. Um, which, for example, in, say, the... Um, Rory Stewart podcast that you just mentioned there he flies all over the world it does my nut in. but the case he makes which i think has weight is that he would argue he's d- going to do more good for the world by his flying around to these places than if he just sat at home eating celery feeling smug and i think that's an important thing to bear into it so i i feel i don't feel guilty that i'd flew into lots of places when i was young i feel sad that they caused damage i accept that a 24-year-old today might be annoyed at me because they want to fly somewhere and I've done all this damage. But, you know, it's up to them. You, you can get on the plane and fly somewhere and have a cool time, but you're doing some damage, but that's the choice you make. And it's it does, the choice they make now, it, has no, it doesn't make any difference what I did in the past. It's just we're here now. Here's a situation we're all in now. What choices are we all going to make going forward? And there's no right or wrong to these things. Well, there are some wrong things, but there's various different options of right. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I think there's sometimes that whole,
2: you know, how much blame we're putting on things that have come before when the vast majority did it. I think there's a, I'm opening myself up to some angry emails here, but there's an arrogance to assuming, you know, one would have been a lot better if they'd been our age back then or whatever it is. I think, you know, you're clearly not a bad person. I like to think I'm not a bad person. I'm going through that phase right now that you've referenced, and it's the guilt phase, and I know I should stop. I absolutely know. And, you know, we've done all sorts of things with my company, like we're taking the train into Germany and the train into the Pyrenees and all this stuff, but I just burnt a lot of fuel going to Alaska and flying helicopters for National Geographic. A
1: helicopters? Lot. Loads Ooh, of them. Sounds fun. Hours. <laughs> Well, here's the thing. So there's a there's, a, there's a, um, a movement, it's called effective altruism, which is not just doing good, but how can you do good effectively? And a really good example of this is if you're, say, some sort of banker in London and everyone hates you, you think, right, the way that I can go and be a nice person and everyone will like me is I'm going to quit my banking job and I'm going to go to Africa and I'm going to build some huts for these poor people and I'll be a really nice person and that'll be great. And yeah, That would be a fulfilling thing for that individual to do. But actually, if he wants to do good, what he really needs to do is carry on being a banker, make absolutely loads of money, and keep what he needs so that him and his family can live in the way they want to, and then give a lot to be effective. So maybe you do that. Go fly some helicopters, but give as much as you can, and a tiny bit more so there's a bit of a squeeze, to some organizations that clean up the air for example there's a there's a what's it called the clean air task force i think it's called it's an american organization that um essentially you pay them money and they do stuff that gets the air cleaned up. (laughs) Simple thing. If you give, you can so easily give them for let's say $1,000 will clean up far more air than me not eating burgers for 20 years and being slightly smug but also slightly unhappy every time I go out for a meal with your friends. So are you giving up flights to signal to everyone what a nice sort of person you are. Are you doing it to do good? Or are you actually going to do good flying around in your helicopters and then give a bunch of cash to clean up some air? Yeah, There's lots of ways to do it, aren't there?
2: Totally. And I think the way I justify it to myself, and I know that I'm justifying it to myself, <laughs> is, you know, millions of people are going to watch that program. And we had this argument in base camp a lot, and yeah, I'd I know. be
1: inspired to fly to Alaska.
2: Well, well, Alex and Tommy, uh, I'm name dropping. It's Alex Holland and Tommy Caldwell and yeah, yeah, well mm-hmm. done. But they they cycled there from Colorado. And that's cool. I, I didn't, obviously, and I flew around in helicopters a lot. But my question is, is us making a movie about them cycling to Alaska to prove that it's doable and climbing a mountain and the conclusion being that actually it was the journey with the friend in over a long period of time that was special and Added so much weight to the ascent, is five million people watching that? Is that worth the jet, the um, heli fuel that I burned? There is not a right or wrong answer to that it's an ethical dilemma. I think i'm cool with it, but ask me again in five years
1: yeah i, I mean if it, if it gets five people to go on a bicycling cross country journey rather than f- taking a transatlantic flight, then you're you're in credit, aren't you, essentially?
2: Yeah, it's complicated.
1: You're a good man, Matt Pycroft. You keep helicoptering around and save us all. Well, that's what I thought. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. um, but I know, I really think though, I really think it's really important to actually be taking action on this stuff, not just to give up me, give up flying, and sit at home feeling smug. The good that does is minute, absolutely minuscule, and I think it's far, better to live in a way you feel comfortable with. But, but you've got to actually do some good with your life. All of us do. With whatever, every single career, we can do stuff that's going to leave the place better than we found it. There's yeah. probably a few jobs you should probably quit if you have, but we don't, maybe don't need to go down those ones. But generally speaking, there's no point in just sitting at home, eating celery, feeling smug. You've got to go do something, haven't you? Yeah, totally. I mean, what there's. I know
2: a lady who, um, can remain nameless, but she makes good money. She's not by any stretch of the imagination you know, a billionaire or anything like that, but she she's a CEO of a small to medium-sized company and she makes good money. And she said the most satisfying thing she has ever done with her life is donate 10% of her income, all of it, before tax. Mm. And it's a self-imposed carbon climate middle-class tax, essentially. I'm sure lots of people have strong views on that, but it's like, You know, she's paying to play, essentially. She drinks nice wine. She goes on holiday. She could not do all of those things. But as you're talking about with credit, she probably does a lot
1: more good than half. She does a lot more good than most of us. Yeah, that's brilliant. I mean... Maybe she should give fifteen percent, sure, yeah, exactly, <laughs> but yeah, exactly, and that is the problem, isn't it that there's no right answer in these things. I think you just need to be able to look yourself in the mirror and look your kids in the eye and feel that you're actually trying to do some actual good, but without wearing a misery hair shirt and having a miserable time,
2: yeah, so back to adventures,
1: <laughs> massive detour, cut all of that,
2: no, I love it, it's all staying okay um. <laughs> But so, yeah, no, it is. It's it's a segue. It's a a transition moment. Is all of this the motivator for you to go and travel around every grid square on your map? Or were you just looking for something to do in lockdown?
1: Uh, Bits of both, really. Um, Yeah, a combination of things. It's that I would love to be flying around Alaska in helicopters, but I'm not for all sorts of reasons. And therefore, what am I going to do on Tuesday morning, I could uh, watch the Jeremy Kyle show, or I could go and uh, satisfy my wanderlust because I love, I love going to places that I've never been. And I could probably do that four miles from my front door. So it's partly to do with that as well. It's like I really am interested to do some sort of thing. And also, it's I hope, going to be a way to encourage other people to explore locally rather than feeling that you the default setting for an adventure is first of all to book a flight to somewhere and buy some expensive equipment. So, Yeah, it's a bit of both.
2: Yeah, and this is obviously a loaded question, but how much of it is mindset when it comes to going out into a random grid square and looking for an adventure?
1: Well, I th- find setting myself projects is quite a helpful thing i mean i'm only a few steps away from being a train spotter really just like the sort of tick sheet mentality of boom 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 i like so i've, I've climbed a tree once a month for three years and um doing it once is quite fun doing it 36 times started to feel meaningful and important and educational so there's a sort of hockey stick accumulation by just repeating things over and over well as you'll know from doing a podcast, doing one, yeah, whatever. You listen to one guy, although your podcast has been downhill ever since the first episode. <laughs> um, but generally speaking, like the accumulation of things makes makes things grow and be better, don't they? So for me, then, if I'd been just, oh, I could go out sometime and look at a grid square, I probably wouldn't do it that often. But when it was like, for one year, I'm going to go out once a week, even if it's lashing it down, and I'm going to go somewhere new, That that project side of things really helped me stick at it, and then the accumulation of having been out in pouring rain and sunshine and spring and summer and winter has made the whole thing feel deeper and richer to me than if I just dabbled a little bit here and there. I think an interesting thing is that now the project is finished, the 52, the year, have gone. I could still be going out and exploring grid squares every week because there's 400 on my map, but I can't really be bothered now. I just sit at home and watch Jeremy Kyle instead. So yeah, I think having a project is an important Part of anything for me.
2: Yeah, and I guess that's just a personality thing, isn't it? Where, you know, I, yeah. this is anecdotal, but, you know, for me, the, the project would stress me out because I'd feel pressure to perform according to it. And actually, I just quite mm-hmm. like going, oh, let's go and do a grid today.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. But non, none of this, there's no, the nice thing about the world of, say, adventure compared to if this was a podcast about 400 meter hurdle running is that you can kind of do adventure however you want to do it. And if it feels like an adventure to you, then that's fine. And you can do whatever you want, as long as you're doing something, I guess.
2: Well, I think that's the absolute core of it. If it feels like an adventure to you, then it is.
1: Mm. Uh, yeah, I've, se- I've said that sentence probably about 8 million times, because I say it in every talk I ever do, uh, when I'm yeah. uh, trying to say, because I think with the, particularly with micro-adventures, there's a lot of I quite often do talks and at the end, someone comes up to me and says, oh, I did an adventure once, but it was nothing like yours because it was really short. And they tell me about some bike trip they did cycling across the Alps or something. I was like, that is literally exactly the same as every adventure I've ever done. It's not, it's not these things don't have to be on a hierarchy of, if I can't climb Mount Everest next week, then there's no point in me doing anything. So yeah, if it feels like an adventure to you, then it is.
2: Well, I think that also plays into the intrinsic versus extrinsic motivator of, you know, you, interestingly, before, and I didn't pick up on it at the time deliberately, but you said your favorite, I think was the word you used, or your best, was the violin and busking through Mm. Spain. Now, of all the adventures, big inverted commas you've done, that's probably the least impressive, maybe. I don't know, is it? Maybe it is to me, my perception of adventure. (laughs) But that was your favorite.
1: Mm. Well, I think it was it was interesting because, yeah, you like adventures for different reasons. So there's some that, yeah, all the ones I've done, I've liked them and I value them for different reasons. But what I loved about busking through Spain without being able to play the violin and having no money for a month was, well, one, it was fun. It was actually fun. Whereas nearly everything I've always done has been self-imposed miseries, but I actually loved that. But also it was it had a real purpose. I was following a, a book by Laurie Lee. So I had a real clear project. There was a significant chance of failure, um, which there wouldn't be. If I was going to go cycle to China tomorrow, I'd probably get there. It'd be fine. It was, but it was this there was a significant chance of failure that no one would give me money because I was so rubbish at the violin. But and also, really crucially, it really helped me redefine what adventure meant. And I'd set these rules to myself as a young man that adventure must be really tough, really difficult, really miserable. And probably also for me to have self-worth as a person, I need to be doing really tough, really difficult, really miserable adventures that are much tougher than everybody else can handle. And actually just redefining adventure as being playing the violin in a little village square and feeling terrified by the idea, but needing to do it because I wanted to buy some bread, that felt like an adventure. So this was a really cathartic experience for me of freeing up And loosening up the definition of adventure, um, which I suppose then has helped me move on to things like feeling happy to write an entire book about one small suburban Ordnance Survey map.
2: Yeah, and I don't want to be mean um, to anybody, including you, but I think I'm significantly more impressed by the map than I am by rowing the Atlantic. And I've never rowed the Atlantic. I'm very, very confident I never will. but. I don't know. It just feels like that I'm going to be blunt for a second. That for me is the sort of adventure that generally I feel like people do so that they've been seen to do it. I'm not convinced that many people row the Atlantic with a wholly intrinsic motivator and the point I'm making I'm coming towards a question of how much is your satisfaction with these local adventures and these sort of positively contrived challenges? actually just because you're happy with who you are and more
1: content and less need to impress the world? (laughs) Well, I think that the local adventure is very much part of me learning to become happy with myself, who I am, and for that to be an intrinsic valuing of myself rather than me measuring my self-worth and my success by the praise I get from other people for doing big adventures which has been very much the case in my earlier years and so yeah i think that's been something that i've really appreciated from doing this local map was just this feeling of yeah this is enough for me and and i'm kind of enough for me now and that all started with the the violin trip as well so Yeah, maybe I'm finally growing up, I think. Um, And it's quite nice. to. It's really nice when you get old and you no longer care what people think about you anymore. I went to pick something up on eBay a while ago. And uh, as I went out of the house, I realized I was wearing Crocs and socks. And I thought, oh, I'd better change because I'm wearing Crocs and socks. And I thought, I really don't care. I'm going to go out. And I went and picked this thing up and the person I picked it up from was even older than me and they were also wearing Crocs and socks and I was just delighted. So yeah, I'm much happier in my life when I'm happy to wear Crocs and socks.
2: Maybe that's a sign of happiness. I wear Crocs and socks on an almost daily basis (laughs) and my wife is perpetually furious. (laughs) (laughs) They're often colorful socks.
1: Ah, okay, so slightly hipster then perhaps, ironic.
2: Uh, It's not as deliberate as I'd like it to be.
1: (laughs) Okay, (laughs) it's comfortable and practical. Yeah, Yeah, yeah.
0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: Um, but I also, so one final thing on that, is what I think is really good about the 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 local map or a year climbing trees is that it it doesn't have to be adventure or life. You know, I'm not just living my life in order to save up money or build up some holiday time so that I can then go and have an adventure. It's just trying to live a little bit adventurously every day rather than having an adventure of a lifetime, just trying to have a lifetime of just living a little bit adventurously with a little bit of curiosity and a little bit of fresh air and nature every day. And, And that feels to me probably like a more sustainable, in all sorts of senses of the word, way of going about life than just yearning towards some massive expedition next year.
2: Yeah. I I don't want to sound disingenuous or blow smoke or make you feel uncomfortable, but for various reasons over the years, I think more than maybe anybody else, you've made me view things differently in terms of what adventure means to me and to others and what it can mean and where to find it. And since I had kids and started struggling with the idea of not going away as much, all that stuff, and actually the map, which is huge, bigger than I ever thought it would be. It's the... And the risk of turning it all into a self-help episode, dreadful self-help episode, (laughs) it's the noticing. It is those simple, you know, I go outside and I just walk that way a little bit. And I'm lucky I do live in quite a wild area. But when I'm in London, you know, looking out the window and seeing a tree or noticing how the light is reflecting off that thing. And it's a mindset. It is all mindset. And then...
1: I'd completely echo all of that. I think noticing and slowing down and just looking curiously at, just means that suddenly everything becomes interesting. Terry Pratchett did a lecture called The Importance of Being Amazed by Absolutely Everything, which I think is a really good way of going about it. And I think one of the um, most useful tools of the entire year on my map was an app called Seek. And Seek is this cool app where you just aim it at a plant or an insect if you can catch it, but a plant generally, and it tells you the name of it. And it's so interesting how just knowing the name of a little random flower by the road brings it to life, and then you start to notice it more, and then you become of those really boring people pointing it out to other people. So that, and then an app called Merlin, which tells you what birdsong is, it's just brilliant. It's like, you're in the woods, oh, look at the bird, listen to the birds tweeting away, that's nice. Ah, now I'm really listening out, oh, is that a wren? It's really, really adds value to it, put, being able to put a name, to something so yeah i think curiosity noticing and putting a name to stuff has been so interesting and certainly the in terms of me writing this book the book that i guess i might have imagined i was going to write at the start of the year is not what i ended up doing at, at all um because of that just noticing endless interesting stuff everywhere
2: oh well that's interesting let's go there let's spin off my next few questions what what were you <laughs> expecting to write
1: I think I was expecting to write Micro Adventures Version Two, which is um, okay, and which is and anyone's free to have this idea for a book because it would definitely sell well. Which is here's places near to you where you can go while camping, while swimming, ride your bike. Uh, make coffee in the woods, all that sort of stuff. Basically, the stuff that I wrote in my micro-adventures book, which there seems to be still just an endless appetite for people trying to find adventure and wildness close to home. So I think that's what I was going to start writing about, but it's not what I wrote about in the end. What did you write about in the end? Thank you. That was the correct question. So what I wrote about in the end uh, was... Um, Well, I wrote, I mean, geez, there's a lot of red herrings and randomness. There's going to be quite a lot of people who read this book thinking, dude, this is really boring. Stop just becoming like a pub quiz bore. (laughs) You're turning into a middle-aged pub quiz man bore who's telling us about every single bird and insect. Uh, But also bigger things I wrote about were uh, land access the sort of issues of access to our land and the right to roam was so became so relevant to me in this year in a way that it hadn't done before um land use what do we use our land for and the implications of that and uh then the loss of nature loss of biodiversity and the potential for rewilding i think those are the three things that just kept striking me time and time again and uh and over time have started to feel more important to me than writing another article on the top 10 best sleeping bags to buy this season. So that's probably a, a change in direction of my, my future ramblings as well. And in your opinion, what are the 10 best sleeping bags to buy this season? Well, I think Alpkit makes some <laughs> oh, excellent models. Come on. <laughs> it's- Alp-Kit, Alpkit are my sponsors, but they're so lovely because essentially I don't do any adventures anymore. So a couple of years ago, I was sponsored by this massive outdoor brand, which was my, in all my young years would be my total dream brand. And I wrote to them and said, guys, you've got to cancel my sponsorship. I'm a total fraud. I do not deserve this anymore. Cancel my contract. And they did. Um, and I've never heard from them ever again. And I said to Alkit, you've got to cancel my contract because I literally don't do anything interesting anymore. And they said, no, no, keep going. We like what you're doing." So. Yeah, they're they're actual fans of exploring locally and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I'm grateful to them. But I do honestly think they should dump me. They really should. But hopefully they're not listening to your podcast.
2: Well, again, it's something we'll agree to disagree on, I just think.
1: (laughs) No, but it is. It's that, you know, uh,
2: this is a tangent, but there are so many, and big inverted commas, talented white dudes climbing impressive hills. And actually, I think you know you you're occupying this really interesting space between lots of the current commentators, you know at one end, obviously we've got mom b o and Robbie McFarlane, and you know etc, et etc, cetera, et cetera, writing all these amazing things about amazing places and why we should look after them and at the other end, we've got the big brave explorers um and somewhere in the middle, I feel that like, and that's what I'm crying out for is somebody saying if you're, and I'm going to use very specific language here, if you're English and you live in this part of England, which you don't think is very special, well, firstly, let me tell you that it is. Then let me tell you it's under threat. And now let me tell you, you can go and see what's special about it. And then if you want to, you can help protect it and restore it and make it even more special like it used to be. And the purpose that somebody can find in that, rather than feeling like they've got to row across the Atlantic because they don't know who or what they are, you know, I, I promise you won't find a sense of community or a tribe from rowing the Atlantic, but you will from falling in love with your local area and wanting to protect it. I don't know.
1: I think you've just, ri- you've just written the back copy blurb <laughs> for my book. I'll quote that. Thank you. That's really nice. But yeah, I my, I would really love it if from doing this, more people do what you've done, which is to get their local map and just go and explore it in whatever way they see fit, bagging the seven summits at f- as fast as you can, if you like ultra running, that'd be a cool thing to do, or pottering around over years, taking one Polaroid and outing like you're doing. So yeah, there's loads of ways to do it. But I do think anyone and I, you know, rowing the Atlantic's a great thing to do. But I also think anyone who's training to row the Atlantic should buy their local map and train by running around the footpaths near them and exploring stuff they've never seen before. Because that is just fascinating how I, as a curious person who has traveled around the entire planet, there are places two miles from my front door that I've never seen. That's just amazing. And more than that, they are interesting places if you choose to find them interesting.
2: Yeah. And I should say a little subset. I'm not just dissing people who wrote The Atlantic or want to, but um, I'm just trying to make a
1: point. But I wrote a very good book about rowing the Atlantic that's available now. <laughs> in all good bookstores? Well, no, it's not in any bookstores, which is so annoying. None of my books are ever in bookstores, which is so annoying. But uh, it is a good book, but it's for kids, <laughs> but it's good. <laughs> I forgot what I was
2: going to ask you now.
1: Oh, <laughs> sorry. Um,
2: so, you know, there's, there are places within two miles of your door that you've never seen, but you've explored a lot of the area around you. To what extent do you think that has helped you connect to the place that you live and find a sense of place, a sense of belonging. And did you before?
1: It's, it has helped me enormously. And one of the one of the big reasons why I started to do this project was because I don't like where I live. I've never liked where I live. I'm here for some pragmatic family type reasons. I don't like it, and, and I've spent far too long grumbling about that. <laughs> and I very much have a tendency to blame every problem in my life with living. Uh, not in the highlands of Scotland in a nice log cabin. Um, And so I set about trying to do something about that, so trying to learn to love the place I live. Um, And uh, it's been... Yeah, I I really appreciate it now, and I, I feel that I know it much better, and that's helped me connect with it all a lot more. So, yeah, it's been really useful in that way I mean what the what the project that it's crying out for me to do is like the uh, you know what's it called the humans of New York thing um, because I've loved wandering around my map and I know so much now about random warehouses and ancient churchyards and stuff but there are probably 50,000 houses on my map and I don't know those people and if I just start going knocking on those doors and saying hello tell me your story I mean geez the amount of stories and fascinating thing that's how i would become really connected with this area was to just find some people and make some friends and things but that's a bit scary but that would be a brilliant thing to do like the humans of my map that's a i might make a note of that that's my that's next year's project yeah yeah we can cut that bit out so nobody steals it but (laughs) yes no i'd love people to steal that it'd be i think i mean that would be fascinating wouldn't it so yeah um I, i was really conscious that I'd go to some grid square and I'd see it in the summertime and it was lovely. But I was always thinking, what if I came in the winter when it was snowing? What if I came at midnight when the moon was out and I could see some bats? What if I knocked on those doors there and talked to that old lady who told me about what this place used to be like in the 1950s before it was grazed by cattle whose uh, runoff was polluting the river and the chalk stream is being destroyed? What would it be like then? Or blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, there's there's a, a real... My book would be much better if it had people in it, but I'm a bit scared of talking to people, so it doesn't...
2: Well, yeah, and I don't want to overtake this with a um, long story, but um, I think that that was a big moment for me, and it was actually because of my map. Um, was I went for a run around one of my... Well, it was a few of my squares, but it was one specific one, which is where I was going to take my picture. And I timed my run which on my special watch, which is right here, and it tells me how brilliant I am or how bad I am. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um,
2: yeah.
1: And you upload the good ones.
2: Yeah, and I screenshot them and put <laughs> them on Instagram. Um,
1: <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> but on my run, there was a man building a cairn on the beach, and I was on a really good run. But I stopped, and I stopped my watch, and I talked to him, and then I decided to not record my run anymore when I set off again because that would have been cheating. But my, my point really is it was that letting my curiosity o- win over my fear of talking to him or my ego of needing my good run. Mm. And actually, I've become friends with this person um, who was building a cairn from this stuff, which is Coralline, which washes up on the beach. Um, mm. Sedimentary rock. He's building a cairn out of it from storm wash that would then get washed away in the next storm and i recorded a podcast with him the next day about his fantastic. and anyway it's a long-winded way of saying you know talk to the strangers
1: yeah yeah talk to the strange, definitely and also search for the searching for the wild places close to you i was reread this week um Reread. Being an intellectual person, I only ever reread books. <laughs> I reread um, <laughs> Rob Macfarlane's book, The Wild Places, which I loved back in the day. And it was really interesting to look at my when I read it the first time round, probably thirteen years ago. It's full of underlinings of all these wild places that he found around Britain, which I then thought, "Oh, I want to go." For example, Loch Carusk, which is a great place in Scotland, I discovered from reading his book. But what was really interesting is the the introduction to his book The Wild Places. He climbs some tree near his house in Cambridge and he's thinking, "Oh man, this is a rubbish mundane landscape. I need to go find some wild places." And he goes off around Britain to find wild places. And my book started me thinking, "Oh, this is rubbish. I need to find some wild places." And I found them without going off around Britain. So I think it was a nicer uh, second way of finding wild places.
2: And when you first started on your map-based journey, did you look for the greenest bits and go there first? Or did you have a a method?
1: Well, like probably like most people listening to this podcast, I love maps. So I get a map and I just start looking at it. And having spent a lot of time in the outdoors, I can read maps quite well. So I can look at it and the contours, I can sort of see the landscape in my head. And for years, that's been really helpful because it's helped me find places to put up my tent and do cool bike rides and sort of fun stuff. So I'm really good at the interpreting maps. But I deliberately didn't want that for this book I didn't, or this project. I didn't want my confirmation biases to take me just to the places that I like. And um, I, if I wanted to find new places. So I used a, essentially a random number generator online to give me the grid square that I had to go to and off I'd go. So some week it was some sort of place that looked really boring just with a motorway and a and a bunch of warehouses on it, and sometimes it was a woodland, and sometimes it was just open, ploughed, farmed fields. But no, it was really deliberate to not choose the places myself. And I'm going to ask you the boring journalist question, which I have
2: to ask, which is, what's your favourite square? I'd never normally ask (laughs) a question like that, but I have to
1: know. Well, there were different sorts of favouriteness, actually. Um, And... um, I'll give you a couple of examples. One was this place, which was all sort of ruined brickwork and sort of concrete on the floor, but with loads of bushes and trees growing out of it. And when I googled it, um, it had been a big factory in the Victorian times, um, but it had—I guess those days had gone—and it was now just being naturally rewilded. And I found that really fascinating and thrilling and uplifting, really hopeful that if you just step back and leave nature alone. It'll do some good fixing of stuff. So um, yeah, I really liked that. And then I just really liked um, random towns. I love now just walking up and down the streets of a random town in a slightly sort of psycho kind of way, just looking at every house thinking, geez, I wonder what story this has got to tell. Wandering around the streets of random towns, um, I really like. And an aspect of this that really helped me was I decided at the start to really try to take Good photographs to really commit to taking pictures, and and my pictures are quite nice, but I know they're not amazing, but they're quite nice. But what was important was that choosing to do that really forced me to slow down, and I took I took about nine thousand photos on my map, um, which is three times more than I took in four years cycling the whole way around the world. <laughs> um, so yeah, that deliberately taking loads of photos and trying to make a drinks can on the street into a beautiful photograph was a really, I, st- I say really a lot. I need to stop saying really. It was an excellent way of noticing and slowing down and being curious about everything, trying to see the beauty and the interest in everything.
2: Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating just to think of how many different ways one could hypothetically do this and the different ways it would yeah. play
1: out. And It's also quite nice, you doing one polaroid photo to go to grid square look around and think i've got one photo to take here what will it be and to really give that some thought
2: well it's the opposite isn't it for me you know you said you took Mm. three thousand in four years cycling around the world i can take nine thousand images in four days on expedition five days (laughs) yeah you know it's my job i I do it for a living Mm. and i shoot on a digital camera all the time and actually my polaroid is a method of me not pressing machine gun mode Mm. And they cost a pound a photograph and, you know, this little stuff. I've I've gone a bit ham recently and really got into it, but that's like three days. Um, But it's I'm allowed one. And that's not I take loads and then pick my favorite. I'm allowed one. Mm. And it completely changes the experience because what I'll do is I'll go to this bit and walk this way, that way, that way, that way. And I'll go, no, the photograph was at the start. I need to go back to that bit. That's where the photo is, yeah. and yeah, it's just to- And it's more. I don't know if meditative is the right word. There's a there's a purpose to my journey mm. that is completely contrived yeah. and totally useless, but
1: brilliant. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. I I um slightly. I like the idea of taking photographs. That you then have to send off to be developed as well. That sort of slows things down and adds the purpose yeah, to it, yeah, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I went. Uh, there's a David Hockney exhibition in London at the moment. It's an incredible thing in the light room. These huge walls. Um, dis- and it it's a brilliant thing, but it was talking about his photo collages, and he was very critical of photography at first, thinking that is a... a he said photography is like a, a, a snapshot in time taken by a cyclops, whereas a painting is time and slow and thoughtful and things and he started then taking loads and loads of photos which he'd pieced together into collages and that then slows down the process of a photograph into a broader more three-dimensional thing Uh, so now I'm now on a mission to go out and start doing some David Hockney photo collages just to up up my pretentiousness level
2: (laughs) 20 by 20 um yeah um well there's one thing I really want to talk to you about I'm conscious of time but and that uh, I hope your answer is yes but if it's not we can debate it are you over the course of your project and and your conversations around it and the book advocating gentle considered trespass
1: yes good <laughs> please go on <laughs> (laughs) okay yeah so the the right to roam and gentle trespass um has been a really interesting stop saying really it's ridiculous (laughs) has been an the right to roam and gentle trespass has been a interesting and important part of my mental journey through this year on my map um i grew up in the yorkshire dales and as a kid just me and my friends my friends and I, we walked wherever we wanted around the fields, cross country, through the woods. We were just fully roaming the entire time. And that was my childhood. And I've always had that fairly casual approach to access in that I wander through fields. I don't cause any problems. I don't leave gates open. I don't scare cows. I don't walk over crops. I don't leave litter. I don't annoy people. I don't leave any trace that I've ever been there. And therefore, I've always felt pretty happy with wandering wherever I want to go. And and that very much applied to micro-adventures. You know, I've spent years now sleeping on random hills that I'm not supposed to and just encouraging other people to do the same but not feeling any real push to get involved in any sort of campaign on those matters. It's like, go, go sleep on a hill. You'll be fine. I'm not getting involved anymore. And then um, I read Nick Hayes, his book, the first book he wrote about trespass. I quite liked it, but I did find it a little bit confrontational and pushy. And I think he's just a bit of a sort of tougher more vociferous character than me. So I quite liked it, but it never really bit me. And then he did the next book, The Trespasser's Companion, which talked more, I think, about how little of the land we're allowed to go on. And something in that started to get into me. It's like, hang on, how can we not be allowed to go up a hill in a wood, in a river? 10,000 years ago, no one owned these places until at some point someone comes along and says, I am richer than you, or I'm stronger than you. or more powerful than you. Therefore, this is now my river and hill, and you can clear off. And I started to feel that during this year, walking around my map, because it's my map. This is my backyard, my countryside. And yet, every single week, huge amounts of it were big red signs, keep out, no access, private, trespassing, get off my land. And it started to really wind me up because I was here to love this land, to learn about it, to care about it, to protect it, to encourage other people to care about it and protect it, to encourage people to get out into nature and help their mental health and their physical health and all these massive catastrophes we're having in our country, and yet being completely limited by how much we're allowed to go on. And it started, frankly, to really get my back up. And uh, so, yeah, I've got much more supportive now of the, the right to roam than ever before. And I think you know, one of the big arguments against the right to roam is that you can't let people roam over land because they'll dump litter on it. Walking around my map, it's totally covered in litter every single week. I was, I, there's litter everywhere, fly tipping everywhere, farmer's litter, plastic litter, everywhere is covered in litter. So if we're being kept off the land in order to keep it pristine, that's not working. So I started thinking, perhaps if you want people to stop dropping litter everywhere, you need to make people feel a sense of belonging and connectedness and caring. And this was really a really interesting. Sorry, really stop saying it. And exa- a small example of this was in the very first week on this square, this map. I walked off down a lane. There was some a burger wrapper on the floor. I ignored it, walked past it because where I live is completely covered in litter everywhere. I'd be picking it up all day long. So I just walked past this burger thing. But later, by the time I'd been around this grid square and had a very interesting time wandering around, taking photos, on the way back, I was motivated to pick up that burger wrapper and put it in a bin because I cared about that landscape a little more than I had two hours previously. So I think that getting more people to care about the land and to learn how to roam on it responsibly will help a lot of things. It'll help how we conserve our landscape. It'll help us realize how we use our land and the catastrophe that is. Um, It'll help us realize that chopping down one tree on Hadrian's wall is really sad, but the reason it's really sad is because that's the only blooming tree for 200 miles because every other tree is long gone because of the way we use our land. And so I think the more people get immersed into the land, the more we'll start to care and look after it. Hear, hear. I was Hmm. hoping you'd say that. Um, but sort of the the thing I should finally add to it though is that I st- so I was wandering around trespassing entirely happily this year. But also I was a bit scared because I d- really don't like doing scary stuff. And the, this right to roam campaign, who I think are brilliant, they do these organised trespasses where they go and deliberately trespass some people. I find that a bit scary. So I can see it's not a comfortable thing to do. And I'm lucky. I'm a six foot tall, extremely muscular, middle class. <laughs> white man, you know, and, and I'm a bit of a sort of bumbling old fool. So if I get, if anyone catches me and shouts at me, I can sort of chat away. Oh, sorry, old chap. And then within five minutes, we'll be having a friendly old chat. So it's so much easier for me than pretty much anyone else who is trying to go out into the land, in, into nature, but it's not an easy thing to do.
2: No, it's not. And I, you know, I have, and uh, and will so do the same thing. I have interviewed both Nick Hayes and John Moses on this podcast, and you can find those episodes by scrolling down wherever you get your podcasts. Um but and I, I get what you're saying about Nick's book, but I do think that they are really good start points for like understanding the issues and the methods, and of course you don't have to be as, you know, as naughty as Nick or as um outspoken as Nick. Um But you are right. It's so much easier. I've been confronted. I mean, I trespass on a weekly basis. And I do it partly as a point and partly because I live in a really agricultural county and there's not a lot. Um, So I do it all the time. And I've been confronted twice in five years. Once was really calm and once was not really calm. But I'm heavily tattooed, bald and bearded. So (laughs) it was fine. (laughs) But I did think if this had been my mum, it might have been a slightly different story.
1: So, mm. you know, that's a... yeah, I thought Nick's, Nick's second book, the green one, The Trespassers Companion, is absolutely fantastic. I ha- folded down pretty much every page in that book. It's yeah. an absolutely brilliant book.
2: Well, John, you know, jokes and stuff aside, John did a really good short podcast on this podcast called um, How to Trespass and Why You Should. And it was just a 15-minute intro. And, it, you know, just the top line, here's the basic method... This is why you should, um. yeah. Okay. Well, I'm glad I asked. Um, It's a big thing, particularly if you're going to go to every grid square because shock horror, you're not allowed to go to lots of them.
1: Yeah, it's it's incredible, and you know another. I mean, I love our footpaths. We have we've got this fantastic network of footpaths, and the uh, well, there's a risk that forty nine thousand miles of those will be lost and literally wiped off the map unless they're reclaimed. So the Ramblers Association needs volunteers to reclaim those. but And they're fantastic. They're a brilliant asset that we have that most places don't. But they're just threads linking yeah. uh, together across the tapestry of our land. And um, I think a diff- an interesting difference I found in thinking about is I spent a lot of time in Scotland. Scotland has footpaths. And the footpaths in Scotland, though, are really useful because they take me They access me to the places I want to go. So I follow a footpath up the Torridon Valley and then I'm off on the mountains. Whereas in England, it's the opposite. They're they're funneling me down this bit because I'm not allowed in all the other bits. And that mindset feels quite different once you start to reflect on it. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I'm pretty sure
2: Labour government, uh, sorry, party, um, I don't know if it was party thing or whether it was YMP said they're committing to talking about the conversation about putting the same rules as Scotland and England and Wales if they're successful. So, you know, I'm not saying vote Labour at the next general election necessarily.
1: No, vote Green.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, they'd do the same thing for sure, of course. Um,
1: but, yeah, I so I've I, uh, I I won't turn this into a political show at all, but I've very consciously in all of my tweeting life never ever done anything about politics at all because I mean, I, there's I mean, there's a million issues you could tweet about. You could tweet tweet about malaria or um, steel uh, deaths in India. God knows what. You could go on it for literally forever. But even within the niche of topics that I'm interested in, I deliberately never talked about politics because I always just thought, man, I just can't be bothered with these arguments. But I now really feel strongly, to go right back to you flying around in your helicopters, that it doesn't. Whatever we do, eating celery or flying around in helicopters, is not going to make an iota of difference compared to what a government can do. And I don't really care what party anyone votes for, but I really do believe that if you care about the environment, then environmental issues should be an important aspect of who you choose to vote for. And there's so many, and I think that should be a, a bigger consideration for more people than it often tends to be
2: yeah yeah here well, well they say it's two of the easiest things you can do isn't it is vote vote well and change who you bank with yeah and stop flying in helicopters oh, oh, c- cut cut that bit <laughs> cut that bit out yeah. yeah um cool i'm very conscious of time but i'd just like to bring you back to the start and i can't remember the exact language that we used, but. I think you were basically implying that you're not really an adventurer anymore. Given everything we've talked about with you, you know, hopping fences and trespassing and exploring back alleys and looking around corners that you've never looked around before, do you not consider any of these moments adventures?
1: I think they are, but I would hope that they are adventures which the literal dozens of people who might read my book will also be doing. I, I hope that there are hundreds, thousands of people across the country who are doing all these sorts of things. And they certainly feel like little adventures to me and hopefully some people doing them. But I don't feel that they I don't feel that they sufficiently merit me being able to put that as a job description, uh, given that I'm hoping that it's just the same as what loads of other people are doing as well. So I think I'd like to be trying to live adventurously myself. I don't necessarily need it on my business card anymore.
2: I think that's a really nice way to put it. I think I've mentioned this a couple of times over the last 160 episodes, but Gilly MacArthur, who I have a lot of time for, if you know who she is, cold water swimmer, climber, amazing woman. She talked about, I'll do this succinctly, the point is you don't need to be a climber, a runner. It's okay to just go climbing and to go running. You don't need to identify (laughs) as it. And actually... Do you need? This is a question, actually. Do you need to be an adventurer, or is it just enough for you to be adventurous?
1: Well, I probably wouldn't get free T-shirts from Outkiss if I didn't have it as the label. Uh, so I, th- but which is a glib way of saying that I think it's slightly more complicated for me because it is. It is actually my job. All of this stuff is actually my job. So I think that slightly complicates things. But if, if I if I won the lottery this weekend, then I don't think I'd need to label myself as an adventurer anymore. I could just try to live an adventurous and curious life.
2: Brilliant. Okay. Well, I always ask everybody the same two questions at the end. You may or may not remember them. I'm hoping your answers are different in the five years, whatever it's been. <laughs> um what scares
1: you? Ooh, what scares me i hate it when you get a little bird in the kitchen and you have to get it out um what scares me um i mean lots of things used to scare me but i think i'm very accepting of a large amount of things these days so so i don't think i feel the sort of existential dread, dread about x y and z that i would have probably did in my tortured answer 5 years ago so i don't nothing really scares me at the moment i don't think Maybe it scares me that uh, we don't get our act together and actually sort out nature and the planet. So yeah, that that actually probably is what scares me. It's certainly what bothers me the most, I think. And what brings you hope? What brings me hope is the incredible resilience of nature. That if we can just not quite screw it up enough, then... The bounce-back ability of rewilding is fabulous. I went to NEP, the rewilding, sort of mothership of English rewilding, um, to the dawn chorus in May this year. And that was one of the most hopeful dawns I've had in a long time. So, yeah, nature comes back. Nature will be absolutely fine if we just get on with it. And it's it's pretty fixable, a lot of it. I think that's
2: a unique answer. We've not had that answer before, and I think it's a really good one. Um, and I think it's relevant to this conversation as well, because you're welcome to disagree, but I find that's something great about travelling around these edgelands is you look at the little sapling that's broken through the concrete. And, you know, I, I mean, I've uh, as I think you know, I've spent a week in Chernobyl, and I found it immensely hopeful because of what nature has done in just a few short decades. Um, the same is true of Suffolk, and where you live on the outskirts of London, and you know.
1: Yeah, well, the other, the other, when you asked me about my favourite grid square, the other one I was going to say was this this valley. Um, it's quite pretty, and it was, it's actually quite hilly, but compared to relative to where I live, and I came to the top of this valley, and I looked out. I was like, wow, this is beautiful. It's a wooded valley. It's lovely. Um, And it really struck me. And I really, really stop saying that word, you moron. Uh, I greatly appreciated this beautiful view. And I was sitting there for quite a while, taking it all in. And this dog walker guy came along. And he saw that I was looking at this landscape. And he said, oh, it's such a shame, isn't it? I said, what's a shame? It's fantastic. He's like, the golf course, the golf course that was here had to close down. And until seven years ago, it had been a golf course. And it closed down for whatever reason. And now it was a wooded pretty wild valley um and i thought that was fantastic so that that fills me with hope for sure that does that fills me with hope because whenever i look at a golf course i just
2: think oh god we've got this all wrong um but very fixable
1: yes totally ace right well we'll leave it there thank you so much thank you very much congratulations on all your 160 episodes an amazing project well done
2: Thanks for listening. For more information, head to theadventurepodcast.co.uk. If you want to get in touch, then you can email me at matt at terraincognita.studio. And finally, as always, please do leave us an honest review on iTunes.